Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. This season consists of both in-person library events as well as virtual facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. That will include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. So with that, I will turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Hello everyone, and welcome to Club Book with Janie Chang. Um, my name is Amy Lynn Green, and I am a Minnesota-based historical fiction author, but more importantly, I am a reader of historical fiction, and I love chatting about books with my fellow readers. So for today, we have The Porcelain Moon. But before I introduce our guest tonight more properly, let me take a moment to tell you about this program. Uh, Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Dakota County Library is the library who is co-organizing this event. We also wanna take a moment to thank our partnering bookseller, Red Balloon Bookshop, fantastic store, and now on to introducing Janie to all of you. Uh, Janie Chang's best-selling historical fiction is inspired by her Chinese ancestry, as well as that culture's rich folkloric traditions. She gained a loyal following with Three Souls and Dragon Springs Road and reached a still wider audience with the 2020 release of the Library of Legends. Set against the Japanese invasion of China during World War II, this book club favorite centers on a group of student refugees who flee Nanjing with a priceless treasure, a 500-year-old compendium of ancient myths known as the Library of Legends. Chang's newest novel, The Porcelain Moon, is set in France during the waning days of World War I. It spotlights the untold story of 140,000 Chinese workers brought to Europe as non-combatant labor during the Great War. Fellow historical fiction writer Kate Quinn says about it, the Porcelain Moon exhibits Chang's signature trademarks, lyrical prose, deftly drawn characters, and skillful excavation of little-known history to give us a rare jewel in a sea of wartime fiction. I know those of you who have already read it resonate with that description, and those of you who haven't, you're in for a treat as you hear Janie share about it. So Janie is going to um, introduce her book a little bit for us, and then we're going to take time to go through some questions that I have as a reader, some questions that all of you submitted in advance. Uh, but if you're just stopping by and you have a question as well, you can submit that question um, in the comments thread on Facebook and our tech manager will wing that our way um, so that I'm able to ask those if we have time at the end of the event. Um, we'll get to as many as we're able to. I know Janie has a lot to share. If you'd rather contribute a question more anonymously, you can send a private message to Club Book on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. So enough from me. Uh, Janie, we would love to hear a little bit more from you about The Porcelain Moon. Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for inviting me to be on this program. I'm absolutely thrilled and 
Amy has shared with me some of the questions that have been sent in, and they are really, really good. I cannot wait to jump into answering them. But first, I guess I'll step back a little bit and talk about the porcelain moon. It's set in World War I France in the week before the armistice. And the two main characters are Pauline and Camille. Pauline is a, young, is a young Chinese woman living in Paris, working for her uncle's antique store. And she's an orphan. And her uncle is about to arrange a marriage for her that's going to send her back to Shanghai. She's not real thrilled about that. And Camille lives in the town of Noyelles-sur-Mer, which is near the Western Front. And she is also not very happy because, well, she's in a very bad marriage. So Pauline runs away to Noyelles-sur-Mer because that is the main camp for the Chinese Labor Corps. And she's hoping to find her cousin, Theo, who's like a big brother to her, who will advocate for her, who she knows will try and get her out of this marriage because she does not want to go back to China. She's, she feels Parisian. And as for um, Camille, we find out that she is trying to escape from the wild Sulmer and from her terrible marriage. And the two women's paths cross. And in doing so, they realize that they are in far more danger than they first thought because of their connections to each other that they did not know before. And then they have to make a terrible decision that binds them together for life. And what I would like to do now is give a very, very brief reading, basically the second half of the first chapter, just to give you a feel for what it's like um, in, in 1918 near the Western Front. And this is told from Camille's point of view. Camille peeped through the bedroom window, the clenching tightness in her shoulders not easing, even after her husband walked out the door. The clank of rusty hinges carried through the still morning air as Jean-Paul yanked open the garden gate. His gait was slightly bow-legged, a legacy of rickets and malnourishment, a poverty-stricken childhood. He turned south where the road forked toward the village of Noyelles-sur-Mer. A cloud obscured the horizon, dimming the early sunlight and for a moment, all Camille could make out was Jean-Paul's silhouette, the canvas knapsack turning him into a hunchback monster. A slight injury early in the war and his stated occupation of railway worker, essential to the war effort, had allowed him to avoid further military duty. Jean-Paul used to come home between shifts, but as the tolls of war mounted, and more men enlisted, the railway put their remaining crew on longer and longer shifts, sometimes for 72 hours at a time. But even those absences weren't long enough for Camille. Moments later, a small donkey cart came over the rise, their neighbor, the farmer Fournier with a load of winter cabbages. Old Fournier was easy to recognize. His broad figure draped in an indigo blue smock driving a red cart, bright slabs of color against the dull yellows and browns of harvested fields. The scene could have been painted by Cézanne. The cart stopped and Jean-Paul climbed down beside the farmer. It was market day in saint valery sur somme across the canal beyond Noyelles, undoubtedly Fournier's destination. 
Jean-Paul would jump off at the Noyelle train station for another long shift on the Nord, the Northern Railway line. Camille didn't know what else her husband might be doing, and she didn't want to know. What mattered was that he would be away. She lay on the bed and gave in to a moment of weariness, waited until her churning insides calmed, nausea subsiding as her body understood it was safe for her muscles to loosen and breathing to slow. She turned over so that she faced the window, not wanting to smell Jean-Paul's hair oil on the pillow, the sour sweat of his body on the sheets. She would change the bed when she came home from work. If he was away overnight, then she could sleep alone in luxury, her limbs sliding under clean linen scented with lavender, her body longing for. No, she wouldn't think about him or what she had to do on her own. At the mirror, she pressed more powder above her left cheekbone. The bruise beside her hairline had faded since the previous day, and as long as she stayed indoors, away from bright sunlight, it wouldn't be obvious. She tied a kerchief around her head and tugged a stray lock to fall across the yellowing mark. In the kitchen, she boiled some water and dried a few mint leaves in a mug. She didn't mind going without coffee, but of all the rationed foods, she missed sugar the most. After a slice of last night's baguette with some cheese, it was time to go. She rolled up a clean calico smock and stuffed it in her satchel for the ride into town. The tide had turned against Germany and its allies, or so the newspapers declared. There were rumors of peace negotiations and news of civilian unrest in Germany, where the Kaiser was being pressured by his own government to abdicate. But the end was in sight, everyone said, and then their armies would demobilize, their men return from the fund, and she'd have to give up her job at the post office. She, she had taken her bicycle and attached the small homemade trailer to the back. She pedaled slowly through familiar farmland, the shrubbery along the road, brown and soggy, bereft of summer's lush foliage. She passed the chateau and barely gave it a glance. It held too many memories, not all of them ple pleasant. Another 10 minutes and she reached the fence surrounding the Chinese labor corps camp. The yard was already busy, smoke and steam rising from the kitchens, men queuing up outside the mess hall. The camp had been built more than a year ago, but Camille still couldn't get used to the sight of its ugly barbed wire fencing. It resembled a stockade more than a camp. At the post office, she tied on the calico smock and began her half day of work, sorting through mail that had come in the previous afternoon. Her heart clenched briefly at the sight of French army stationery. In the days and weeks after Rosignol, after Verdun, after the Somme, it seemed as though tragedy cascaded through her hands with every piece of mail. Families destroyed, lives maimed and forever changed. There were only two such envelopes today, thank goodness, but it was still too many. The Postal Service began hiring women to replace men who had gone to war, and it was all right with John Paul for his wife to work at the post office. It was a respectable job in town with modest but welcome wages. Camille suspected the real reason Jean Paul agreed was that it gave him a chance to get friendlier with the Dumonts, the postmaster and his wife, 
who were prominent citizens of Noyelle. Jean-Paul and du Monsieur Dumont talked about the war, the price of food, and often as not, the disruptions caused by foreigners in their little town. British, Canadian, and Australian soldiers were stationed there, and there were also Chinese workers. On principle, Jean-Paul didn't like foreigners, not even refugees from neighboring Belgium, and the Chinese were decidedly foreign. He grumbled at newspaper photographs of brigades arriving in Marseille from Indochina, at accounts of British troops and Indian Sikhs marching through France on their way to the front, but at least they were soldiers. It's one thing to bring soldiers from our colonies to help us fight, even if they're only short little Orientals, he said, but these Chinois aren't going into battle for us, Digging and carrying, that's all they're doing. Digging trenches, loading fuel for tanks and vehicles, repairing roads and railway tracks after aerial attacks. The machinery of war has many parts, Jean-Paul, Monsieur Dumont said. Napoleon was a brilliant tactician because he understood the logistics of supplying his armies. He could have run a modern postal system. Monsieur Dumont liked pointing out the postal system as a model of efficiency. But while Jean-Paul didn't like the Chinese, he didn't mind making money off of them. When he heard that the workers liked buying Western clothing, Jean-Paul ransacked the armoire in Camille's father's bedroom, then went to the camp on a payday with a sack full of her dead father's clothes. They paid me what I asked for, the stupid chin talks, he boasted. So many of them, all wanting these old clothes so much, they barely haggle. A few days later, Camille saw a tall Chinese strolling along the main street in Noyelle, one hand straightening the lapels of a familiar waistcoat. Her annoyance faded when she saw how gently the man touched the garment's brocade front and brass buttons, pride and pleasure evident in his face. Jean-Paul shrugged when she pointed at the man, wearing the waistcoat he had sold behind her back. They're like children, he said contemptuously, dressing up in our clothes, putting everything on the wrong way. He's got it buttoned over that ridiculous tunic. But you're the one who sold it to him, she said, her voice just above a whisper. She winced as his fingers tightened on her arm. Camille shook her head at the memory. She finished sorting the mail into bags and set them down by the back door for Emile to pick up. She put a dried out carrot from her cellar on top of the bags, a small treat for the donkey that pulled Emile's mail delivery cart. No, she thought, Jean-Paul didn't have a money taking problem, didn't have a problem taking money from the Chinese. And he'd kill her if he ever found out she was in love with one. That was a great place to end. And how fun to hear you read. It's just nice to hear the author reading their own work. Uh, as if I could possibly hate Jean-Paul anymore, I do now. So <laughs> thank you, Janie. And actually, um, part of what you included in that scene is a question that we got from some of the readers ahead. They said, um, this person read it and said, as I was reading, I kept thinking, how can the story of these uh, Chinese labor corps not be better known? So uh, this person wanted to know, how did you learn about the Chinese labor corps uh, workers who came over in World War One, And um, what, how did you, what made you decide to base your whole novel around that historical fact? 
Well, excuse me, I have terrible hay fever right now. We have spring here sooner than you do in Minnesota. Uh, well, I was researching my previous book, The Library of Legends, and totally by chance, I came across a news article from a UK paper talking about the city of Liverpool putting up a monument to recognize the contributions of the Chinese Labor Corps and the 140,000 workers who had gone over in the First World War. And just the way you probably did when you started reading this book, I was like, what 140,000 Chinese workers who went over during the First World War to Europe? Like, I had no idea China was even involved, that any Chinese had gone over there. <laughs> so first I had to finish writing the Library of Legends, and then I got back into the research, going down many, many rabbit holes. And it turned out that um, China had offered to send soldiers um, for to help the allies in Europe, but they had been turned down. And a professor at Oxford University named Rana Mitter, he said it was be one of the reasons was because the British were very reluctant to have Chinese soldiers and Chinese officers um, fighting alongside them because mm -hmm. that would make them their equals. And they felt that the Chinese were not an equal race and the Chinese nation was not very strong in those days. Chinese was a, China was a very young republic. There was a lot of infighting and, you know, it was not a well-respected country. Of course, there were also Sikhs from India who were fighting um, in British regiments, but that was okay because India was like a subject nation to the British. <laughs> The other reason also was that um, the workers were about, about 78% of them were illiterate. They were very much, they were mostly peasants, which meant that there wasn't a lot of firsthand written documentation, um, memoirs. To this date, um, we only know of two memoirs, one from a worker who was actually a school teacher and another one from um, a young man who was a translator, and they wrote down their memoirs. And there are also a couple of other memoirs from um, the British side. But for the most part, it was as though um, the British soldiers just didn't think um, it was worthwhile writing very much about the Chinese Labor Corps. Um, probably the most documentation you'll see would be the YMCA, because the YMCA were sent to the Chinese Labor Corps camps um, to you know, help teach them English, to convert them to Christianity, um, give them recreation, uh, you know, amusements and so on for improving their morale. So there is sort of a, a lack of written documentation. And then the British themselves, even though they were meticulous when it came to military records, these Chinese were not military. They were there as civilian labor. They were non-combatants. So the paperwork was kind of sloppy, okay? <laughs> and maybe, A lot of work uh, for you. <laughs> well, it meant that um, I found that a lot of the books that I read, the reference books that I read, were really going back to the same sources over and over again. Yeah. And then on the Chinese side, that was also really interesting. You would have thought that on the Chinese side, 
um, the government and scholars and academics would want to um, make sure that the Chinese themselves understood the contribution of these workers, but actually, no, for a number of reasons. You know, the First World War was actually a really terrible time for China, and there were so many other things going on that were traumatic and affected all Chinese. I mean, it was the New Republic. The New Republic got a new president. The president decided he wanted to um, he wanted to be an emperor. So, you know, that didn't work out. And the country had fragmented into territories controlled by warlords. It was just on and on. And so even though, um, and then what happened was the Chinese delegates went to the Paris peace talks in 1919, hoping that the contribution of the Chinese workers, some of whom were killed during the war, because there's this um, there's a cemetery in, in Noyelle-sur-Mer for the Chinese workers, um, hoping that they would be able to sit at the bargaining table and get back um, some Chinese territory that had been ceded to Germany. But they got nothing out of it. And in fact, some of the territory that had belonged, that had been sort of leased to Germany, ended up going to Japan. So all in all, it was just really humiliating and shameful. So, you know, kind of glossed over the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, after the First World War, things got even more tumultuous. There was um, the, the Chinese communists and the nationalists, you know, it was the early start of the Civil War. The Japanese invaded China. Then we rolled into the Second World War. And basically, there was all sorts of stuff that just seemed more worthy of documentation than these poor peasants um, who had gone, come back, and really left very little trace. Wow, I'm so glad that you took the time to tell their story. And I also, for, for those of you who are in book clubs and whatnot, the author's note in the back of here has so many fun, like here's the real history that inspired this. And here are some real figures that some of these fictional characters are based on. And that would provide a lot of discussion for any book club you're in. Um, I really appreciated that. Thanks for taking us along on your research journey, oh, Janie. That was yeah. just really fun to hear about. I'm really hoping that um, if there's more interest in it, people will go digging further in the archives because there's stuff that came out of the uh, British Imperial War Museum and you know the archives of museums in along the Western Front and so on. So it there's got to be public interest for people to feel that it's worthwhile doing that digging. Yeah, wonderful. Um, uh... When one of the things that I found interesting, so for those of you who haven't read the book, this is not a spoiler, but Pauline is one of our main characters and her brother Theo is working as a translator. Um, I really love the way you talked about how it's not just a language skill. It wasn't just communicating between people, but also bridging that cultural gap um, and some of the cultural differences that came up. Was there anything that was particularly hard for you to write about because it was based on something real? Um, or was there something in your research that you thought, oh, I need to include this, but it's something that's very difficult? There are things in there that were very difficult because um, some of those workers, I mean, there were some of them were just kids, right? They were 18 to 40 years old. They'd never been out of their little village. They were farmers, you know, they were. And here they were seeing airplanes for the first time and bombs being dropped, people being killed. 
And they had been promised that they would be doing work behind the front lines, but front lines move, right? As the war progresses, regresses, whatever. And they ended up, you know, some of them were clearing out trenches and there was all sorts of horrible things in those trenches. And there were unexploded munitions in those trenches. And that's how some of them died. And um, so there were there was suicide and there were there was insanity. You know, mm -hmm. um, talk about you know post-war stress. Um, these young men were dealing with it and they didn't speak the language, they didn't know what was going on. And even though they were supposed to be civilians, because they were reporting to the British military, they were subject to British military law. So mm -hmm. not only were, there, were they not familiar with Western culture, they were not familiar with what was expected of them under British military rule. So the punishments were very, very harsh because it was considered um, a disciplinary problem. So yeah, that was, that was really bad. Yeah, very like I loved seeing it through the eyes of Theo and Pauline, though, who had great compassion. And that made even some of the difficult parts um, important to read and uh, really a riveting read all throughout. Um, so let's talk about our leading ladies, Pauline and Camille. Um, I felt this way, and I know that others who submitted questions or wrote reviews of this book felt the same way that both of them have very different personalities um, and they're just both very fascinating women. And while they were strong and complex characters, they felt like they really could exist in the early 1900s. So talk to us about how did you create these two women um, and make them a part of their time and kind of reflect some of the limitations that they might've felt, uh, the risks they had to take uh, being women in their time, but also uh, make them people who really resonated with readers of this century. For, um, for historical novelists, that's a great question. <laughs> for historical novelists, especially when we write about women, we have to make sure that it is feasible and plausible for our characters to behave the way they do. Because, you know, sometimes we get these comments, oh, I wish um, your character had been more feminist. But, you know, 17th century feminism and that term was not, did not even exist the way we understand it now. It's not the same as 21st century feminism. So, you know, for something um, as obvious to us as to, you know, like Camille, you know, get away from that guy. He's, he's a terrible husband. Mm -hmm. You know, to us, that's like so normal and it's such a small thing to do, but for someone like Camille, raised Catholic, no divorce from a small town, it was that was a huge step and an incredible act of bravery. And you know, for um, Pauline, who is raised in a very traditional Chinese style, and she's kind of straddling two cultures. On the one hand, she knows what it's like to be able to walk around in the streets of Paris and. On the other hand, she still remembers how restricted the life of um, girls and women were back in China. You know, for her, again, to run away to try and get Theo to help her, that is an indication of how desperate she is, you mm -hmm. know? So, and at the same time, I think, you know, um, fiction has to have conflict. And during times of war, it's, there's conflict, there's social change, there's political change. And for all 
everyone in France actually having that, you know, the world war was a big eye opener for them. The world was, was a much bigger place back then. Um, there were, there were fewer than 300 Chinese in all of France. So, you know, this would have been the first time that people outside of Paris, that people in this little rural town had ever encountered someone of a different race, you know, and here they were, <laughs> um, you know, cycling in and out of, of the camp at Noyelle sur mer It was also a time when um, the French government was not only bringing in foreign labor, I mean, they also brought in labor from Algeria, um, and from South Africa and Morocco and um, all these other places, but they also started encouraging women to work. And in fact, um, factory owners were encouraged to hire women, and they found that for making munitions and pouring gunpowder into weapons, women were actually much better at this. They were more careful and precise. So um, you will see photos on my website of women working in munitions factories beside Chinese men who have been brought over for it. So by the way, um, if you do have a book club on my website, janiechang.com, um, for every one of my books, I have a gallery of photos to help you sort of understand the world of the novel. So it was a time when maybe women were feeling a little bit more empowered. They were earning money. Certainly for Camille, it was the first time she had ever earned wages. And of course, her husband took it from her, but, you know, she was, she was working. You know? mm -hmm. I love that. Like all of these aspects of these women's lives, um, both show the history of the time and help explain why they make the choices that they do. And I love that. Um, and I love how Pauline and Camille come from two very different worlds too. And that was a great um, way to experience different parts of their story and how they came. To, I was, I was so excited when they came together again, don't want to spoil anything, read it, read it. People who haven't read it yet. Um, thinking more about the writing process, there was somebody who asked, do you have any bits of advice for people who are aspiring writers, especially any who are interested in historical fiction? So it could be about process of writing, the process of research, anything along those lines. Okay, my top, top writing tip is just write. Sit down and write. Don't expect it to be perfect, even if it's crap. Because when you're writing, I mean, when we write, we're basically drafting. And then we go back and we edit and we revise. So you can always edit crap. You can't edit a blank page. Okay? And um, I had a writing instructor who said something that really, really was so helpful. She said, you know, get your story down, start to finish. Then even if it's terrible, go back and you revise. You do revisioning. And she said, revision. You are revisioning your story. That's what revising is. So don't get discouraged if the story that you're writing down, you know, seems really terrible. Because believe me, we all go through these stages when we think this is terrible. 
My editor will never have lunch with me again. They will never want another one of my books again. But, you know, the important thing is to get your book down from start to finish, because honestly, by the time you get to the end, you will you will have figured out what it is you need to do back at the beginning to make it a better book. So don't be discouraged. Um, for the process of, of historical fiction, I tend to spend about six months off and on doing the research because you know, you can, there can be Regency romances, and they're lots of fun, and they're frothy, and they end up looking like Bridgerton, right? And nobody expects those to be um, true to life anymore. But um, I, I want my books to be as close to historically accurate as possible, while still allowing room for fiction. Um, because fiction, I the historical doc, the historical record is never complete. There are always the gray areas, and the gray areas are where we get to play, where we as authors get to <laughs> make up what what happened, you know. Mm -hmm. But I just find that the more I'm immersed in that time period, the place and the and the time, um, the easier it is for me to write something and to say to myself, oh no, she would never do that. She would never say that because this was going on at the same time. So um, I don't know if everyone is as nerdy about it as I am, but certainly I need to feel um, that I'm fairly knowledgeable about that era. And of course, the dangerous thing is that you can, if you're a real history nerd, you can spend those months convincing yourself that you are doing wonderful things and you haven't written a single word yet. So at some point, your, your writing deadline is going to smack you across the head and you're going to think, mm, I guess I better start writing. <laughs> Janie, so that was fun. That was such a wonderful picture of the highs and lows of the writing life. So in summary, you may write stuff. It may be terrible. Sometimes you might get lost in research trails, but that's part of the fun of the job. Um, uh, I am told by our tech manager that a lot of people on Facebook were uh, enjoying the advice of you can revise crap, but not a blank page. So that hopefully will encourage some fellow writers out there. <laughs> um, so speaking of the writing process, one of my other writer friends said, if you wrote a book during the lockdowns of 2020, you deserve at least an extra star on Goodreads for every single review. Um, so you did write this in lockdown conditions. Mm -hmm. And you also in your acknowledgments talked about a writer friend who said it's hard being friends with an author because even when we're there, we're not there, um, which I loved. So talk to us about what your writing process looked like for this book? Was it typical of your books? Um, was it different? Um, and do you do you find yourself often in brainstorming mode or is it something where you sit down and have set times where you're writing? Well, I would say that my writing process has evolved to become more efficient. For those of you who are working on your debut novel, cherish every minute of your debut novel because you don't have a deadline there isn't an editor breathing down your neck you get to you know you know commiserate with the muse when she doesn't show up and it's just wonderful right um so that was when i was pantsing my first novel was definitely pantsing 
But since then, um, I tend to submit a proposal of about seven pages of synopsis and a little bit of research um, mm -hmm. to my agent. And if she thinks it's a good idea, then we pass it on to my publisher who can say, um, well, I think this will work or I don't think this will work. Or can you have two, this story happen from two women's point of view, which is what happened with, you know, this particular novel. So, um, and we're always pushing our boundaries, writing from the point of view of two protagonists instead of one, you know, that was something, alternating chapters, which I hadn't done before. Um, so I would say that if you can plot, it actually does make life easier because generally, I know how I want the book to start. This is usually what happens. You're standing in the shower and you have this brilliant idea and you have the first chapter scene in front of you. And then I knew what, how it was going to end. And the middle, the middle is what totally kills you, right? I see Amy's nodding, right? Yep. Because you have to keep, the, the middle is where you have to keep the momentum and the action going and you know try and keep people interested in the book I call it the saggy middle. And I find that if you can plot it through, um, the middle is not so saggy. You can get up in the morning and say, okay, now I need to get from, from H to J. And this is what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And um, I just find that it's, it's more reassuring that way. <laughs> and yes. the other thing is I had great ambitions to go to France, to Northern France, and do my research in 2020. And of course, that didn't happen. And I even got in touch with um, a professor that I met at um, the university in Aix-en-Provence. And he introduced me to a grad student from the University of Paris, who was working precisely on the Chinese Labor Corps. Oh. And I said to her, you know, can you go up to Noyelle-sur-Mer, do this, um, go take a look and, you know, tell me what you found. And she emailed me back after doing a bunch of research for me. She said, I can't go. It's totally locked down. Um, the, the deputy mayor emailed me and said the town hall and the adjoining little museum are completely shut down. There's no one going into work. So she says, so even though she was just a train ride away, she lived in Paris. There was nothing to be done. So it just meant that I spent a fortune on reference books. Man, that is heartbreaking though. Ah, oh. but I mean, books are wonderful and we love them, but I would have loved for you to get that trip to Paris for research for this, but you did an amazing job uh, describing the locales, even just in the section you read, France comes alive uh, really well in your story. So those well, print sources- yeah, I mean, thank thank you to the internet, thank you to my print sources, and also um, I used to work for a company that had its European head office in Paris, so I've been to Paris quite a bit, and I've taken the train out to the countryside, so it was sort of this, okay, Janie, what did the countryside look like from the train? Amazing. So that was helpful, yeah. Now, your comment and answer to that question sparks oh. a question that I hadn't realized, um, which was uh, wh which protagonist was originally going to be the only protagonist of the story? It was going to be it was going to be Pauline because obviously I'm going to write from the Chinese uh, woman's point of view. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and as it turned out, um, writing from Camille's point of view was also really helpful because it was a way to see the Chinese and the war through the eyes of the French, whereas with Theo and Camille, it was a way to see the war and the Chinese laborers through the eyes of, you know, their countrymen. Sort of yeah. That's what I would have guessed, but both of them are so well integrated and it's just so seamless that I can't imagine the story with only one or the other. So how neat that that comment prompted uh, a lot of depth in the storytelling, although I'm sure it was a challenge in its own way. Yeah. Oh, yes. And the thing about um, authors are really bad friends. So um, <laughs> with all my book launches, I throw a big party and it's not so much a book launch party as an apology party to all the friends <laughs> that I've ignored for the past 18 months and you know <laughs> Jamie Jamie you're just so relatable this is the best like I love I love all of this and I can echo a lot of these sentiments but uh you know, you have a book at the end of it and they get to experience a part of your life that they wouldn't if you were not an author friend. So that's really neat. Um, so I also want to hear, um, somebody, somebody asked a question that relates to uh, World War I as a setting and said, man, in our book club, we see a lot of World War II novels. We don't see as many set in World War I. Do you think there's a reason for that? Do you feel like it's something that we're going to see more of in the future? Um, so talk to us a little bit about, uh, you have set a book in World War II as well. Um, so you clearly have a love for both time periods, um, but I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, I don't know why that is. Um, I mean, for example, when Downton Abbey came out, there was a huge surge of interest in World War One, but it was sort of World War One British aristocracy mm -hmm. kind of a um, kind of a setting. Maybe it's simply because World War Two is so much. It's so black and white. You have, you know, you have good, you have evil. Um, the U.S. came into the war, um, so there was a lot of Hollywood opportunity. Um, the Nazis were definitely on the evil side. And World War I is a bit more amorphous. It's sort of like Archduke Ferdinand got shot and then there was a war. Why? Why? <laughs> you know? Yes. And I think also um, World War II is closer to living memory. There's still people... Um, who can talk about it. So I think it's just that it's, you know, we're so influenced by Hollywood and Hollywood likes things to be simple. You know, the heroics are black and white. That's my theory. I don't know. <laughs> No, I think that's a really good description. And I think what I liked about your story is, first of all, what other people said about not knowing that bit of history, whereas World War II history might be a little bit more well-known. Um, but obviously with the Library of Legends, you can find things that people don't know about World War II as well. Um, but I love that it's a slice of life of individual people and how the war mattered to them. Even if we don't talk about the whole scope of what does Archduke Ferdinand mean to the average person? This is what, what does it mean to my life and to my family and how they relate? So I love that. Um, yeah, thank you I, for that. No, I just think that um, so much of what we are taught at school, and I say we because I went to school in Canada, I grew up here and um, it's very, very Western centric, right? So only now are our books coming out like um, Pachinko um, that talk about the war, the Second World War in Korea, you know. Mm -hmm. um, 
stories about the Japanese invasion of China, which is what I wrote about in the Library of Legends, that it was a world war, that there were things happening elsewhere. And um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're talking to a lot of history nerds here, so they are all excited to hear new Hi, stories of new nerds. aspects. Yeah, it's a good crowd. It always is. And I love that. Uh, you could see that in all of your questions. So thanks again to everybody who sent in questions. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about what you have upcoming in your writing, because I would love to hear, um, I pre-ordered it already. So for all of you out here, uh, The Phoenix Crown, uh, Janie is co-writing with uh, Kate Quinn, and it's coming out this fall. I would love to hear about your process of co-writing a book with another author and what does that look like? Um, how did this come about? Please tell us. Well, so Kate and I were both working on our solo novels. Um, she's got one that she's she's working on frantically right now that she needs to hand in at the end of March. Wow, it's the end of March. And um, I was getting started um, with another book that um, I need to hand in next March. And when we came up with the idea for this, um, for the Phoenix Crown, um, our publisher got so excited. It was sort of like, can you two fit it in between your two solo novels? And we stupidly said yes. And um, during the writing of The Phoenix Crown, we both individually nearly had nervous breakdowns because of a tight deadline. But um, Kate came to me and said that she'd always wanted to write about the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. And one of the things that um, she wanted to make sure she got into her book was the fact that the first original Chinatown had burnt to the ground. So everything you see of San Francisco's famous Chinatown right now was completely built after 1906, 1908, you know? And so she said, it would be great. She says, I have this idea for um, an opera singer um, from, you know, who's gonna be singing with the New York Met Opera. And um, I would really love it if we could have a Chinese female character from Chinatown so that we've got these two points of view. And I guess our first concern was, could we do this and still remain friends? <laughs> what a great question. That, 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 there's always that niggling concern, right? Business and friendship kind of thing. And then we thought, well, let's see if our agent likes it. So fortunately we have the same agent. So that made things a little bit easier. And we holed up in a hotel together. Oh, the other thing she said was because she was um, te she's temporarily living in the Seattle area and I was in Vancouver. So we were actually in the same time zone and within driving distance of each other. So we holed up in a hotel room and we just sort of knocked out the plot, wrote up the synopsis, sent it to our agent who said, hmm, not sure, you know, needs, you know, San Francisco, California. Could you throw in some New York? Could you throw in something more glamorous back to the drawing board? Plotted it out again. And, you know, and this time she loved it. Our publisher loved it. Um, slapped down a very intimidating um, deadline. And then we started working on it. And we had another meeting face in, in a hotel room. And I wanna say Excel is the greatest tool. So is Google Docs. 
Absolutely. Because <laughs> we, um, we basically knocked out um, the plot chapter by chapter on Excel. So she would know what to write. I would know what to write alternating chapters. And Google Docs allowed us to collaborate. And also it was like, we, neither of us are morning people. And that is so important. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> and we discovered that we both have the same work ethic, which really helps because that could have sunk. That could have just sunk the friendship, right? Yeah. Oh, and man. <laughs> I am so delighted by the thought of you guys huddling in a hotel room with an Excel sheet open, just frantically plotting out this novel. Well, Janie, what might be stressful for you is going to be something that makes a lot of readers happy. So we are cheering you on as you're working on your editing and revisions deadlines. Oh. Um, so we just finished. Um, yeah, we're handing in the copy edits um, this weekend. And there's already a beautiful cover for the novel. And I think the cover reveal will happen sometime in the next month or so. And, you know, we were... We're really happy with how it turned out, um, even though we nearly had nervous breakdowns. In <laughs> yep. What's stressful for the authors <laughs> is delightful for the readers. Um, that is great. And for those of you who are listening to this and want to know more about Kate and what she does, there's also a club book episode um, where I was chatting with her last year. Um, it's episode 128 and you can find it on clubbook.org or wherever you get a podcast. Uh, you could look that up and hear more about um, her last book, which was The Rose Code. Um, but you also have a solo no novel coming out then, Janie, that you somehow managed to squeeze a bonus novel in between. Um, is there anything you want to hint to us about that? Or do you just want to tell us when to be looking for those hints coming out? Well, I'm good. I have a year to hand it in. The title is called The Fourth Princess. And I am really excited because it's not going to be about war. Because I have to tell you, when you I've, I've done two war novels in a row, World War II, World War I, and the research is brutal. It really can be very, very depressing, the inhumanity um, that we are capable of inflicting on our, you know, our fat fellow man. And, um, but this one is not going to be about war, it's going to be set at, you know, like turn of the century, Shanghai, and it's going to be a gothic novel set in Shanghai, and I'm just going to have fun, okay, I'm going to have all the tropes, mysterious mansion, you know, secret that needs to be uncovered, the glitz and glamour of, you know, of Shanghai, and, you know, the white uh, population and the Chinese population and behind it all the downfall of the imperial city in Beijing and you know what's happened yeah <laughs> I'm so excited that sounds wonderful because I, I love gothic a... novels right I love so gothic novels I'm a sucker for good secrets and intrigue so Ah, I'm glad. I'm glad you get a chance to do that. I love the porcelain moon and I love the details about the war, but I could feel Thank the you. heaviness that you probably had to go through in order to write that. Um, I do love how focusing on the two women provides a lot of hope. So for readers out there who are worried, it's not a depressing book, um, but it that it does sound like a kind of a fun change to be able to write something completely different. I really look forward to it. I can't wait. <laughs> to get started on that one. 
So you mentioned that on your website, you have places where book clubs can find materials on your books. Uh, Is there any other way that readers can stay in touch with you, hear more about what you're doing so that they don't miss things like this fun cover reveal that you're going to be doing soon or uh, the when you have more details uh, and buy links for that solo novel coming out in 2025? Well, so my website is really easy, janiechang.com. And I have a Facebook page and I'm also on Instagram, but the best thing you can do is sign up to my newsletter. There you go, readers. There's another good reason to head over to Janie's website and sign up. Um, I know there will be all sorts of fun news from her in the future. So, and Janie and I were just talking about before we started here, how much it's fun to hear questions from readers and do events like this. So um, we are grateful for all of you. Um, anything else you want to share with us, Janie, before I wrap things up? I know we could have kept going for hours with all of the questions. So I'm sorry to anybody whose question that I didn't get to, but. Well, let's see. Um, in April, there's something to look forward to. Um, my my friend Jennifer Robson is coming out with a book called Coronation Year, which is about something that happens um, during Queen Elizabeth II's coronation. And I always say that I don't know how she does it, but her books always come out uh, to coincide with something happening in the royal family. And this is it's really great. And the other thing is that, um, you know, sometimes you read a book and you're not only immersed in it, but it is so good that you're saying to yourself, why can't I write like that? My goodness, I need to, you know, I can learn from reading this book. And this is, oh, okay, hang on. Wait a minute. This is this is what I'm reading right now. Can you see that? Yes, perfect. Um, Homecoming, Homecoming by Kate Morton. And it's just one of these things where you're looking at the structure, the language, the way you just feel like you're out in the countryside in Western Australia. I just, it's fabulous. <laughs> well, I'm adding that to my to-be-read list, which is currently towering, but that just means there are more wonderful books out in the world, right? Absolutely. We all have towering TBRs. It's a badge of honor. Yeah. And thank you so much for adding the Porcelain Moon to lots of readers today. Um And thanks for sharing everything with us today. It was so great to hear you chat about your book and your process, Janie. Well, I was thrilled to be invited and the questions were wonderful. And you guys have just made this um, easy and fun. Thank you so much. Um, And thank you for joining us tonight. Bye, everyone. That wraps up our Dakota County Library event with Janie Chang. Make sure to catch our next Club Book Podcast with Oscar Hokia. Oscar Hokia is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the Kiowa Tribe of Oklahoma. He also proudly claims Mexican ancestry on his father's side. Hokia's new novel, Calling for a Blanket Dance, explores intertribal identity and multicultural heritage. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, library strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. 
Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.